Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at chapters 4 through 6 of A Scanner Darkly. A Scanner Darkly was published in 1977, um, and it would be the last novel he would publish before the Vallis Trilogy, which ended his, his, his career, um, published right before his death. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of a bittersweet moment for me, as I suggested in the last episode coming to to an end of to, to the last Philip Dick novel that I actually quite like uh, there there's a few nice things in the Vallis trilogy but but by and large I'm not a big fan of those books um, but this one this scanner darkly is really a great novel and I think it's his last great novel um, you know even though it's dark even though it's bleak and as you know I kind of like the the, the, the jokey funny optimistic side of Philip Dick's novels the ones who who see the possibility of struggle um, but when Dick is writing from within what he'll later call the Black Iron Prison, you know, really within the institution and talking about those, it's, it's very powerful. And, and he does it better here than I think in pretty much any other in any other work. Um, really, the core theme of this novel is the incestuous nature between drug addicts and drug dealers and the dualistic nature of paranoia, paranoia by the police over you know, the, the drug dealers and the, the drug users and the drug pushers. And on the other hand, the paranoia of the drug users about the police state that that's emerging. The novel set in a world that's very much like suburban California in the time it was written in the 70s. It's set in the 90s and there's a few technological innovations. There's a drug substance D, which is just a, a very addictive drug that people take orally in pill form. There's a scramble suit, and there's a few other little technologies, but but by and large, it's set in a world that's very um, recognizable to people in the, in the 19, 1970s. Uh, written in the early years of the of the drug war, the drug war really was started in the Nixon administration, and would of course continue on to the present. Um, uh, and it really for uh, predicted, I think, the the failure of the war on drugs. So in the first three chapters, we met um, a lot of our characters, not, not all of them, but most of them. We, we met uh, people on the, we, we met some of the addicts, uh, the substance D users and their day to daily struggle with police and paranoia and their addiction and the need for supply and all that. We also met Bob Arctor, who is an undercover police officer who's part of that drug culture as, a, as an undercover detective, but he's, I guess, on the, the square side of things, at least you know, officially. And we see him giving a speech to a square community, a Lions Club in Anaheim, and we really get an image into the paranoia of of the of the straight culture about drug use. We learn a little bit about how he works and how he he functions, and and then in chapter and then in chapter three we get a, a little bit more on both of those themes: the what life is like for the drug users when we meet uh, some of Bob Arctor's roommates. Bob Arctor owns the house, and he's got these roommates who live with them, Jim Barris, Luckman, this other guy, Frack, he comes and visits once in a while. Um, so we get a little bit of their their life and, and their shenanigans. 
and their interesting characterizations. These were drawn from life. Dick talks about at the end of the novel and in an author's note how these are really drawn from life. And, and some of these were characters who, who did not meet very good ends in, in Dick's own lifetime. So some of this is almost a, a love letter or memorial to to these people. Uh, we also also get a little bit more about how Bob Arctor works as he tries to track down uh, a pusher who who checked himself into rehab basically to to get away from the police and then has just since disappeared. So mostly chapters one through three really set up the the technology, the world we're in, the the, the nature of this drug trade. I, I talked at length about it in the previous episode, so you probably just have to go back and listen to that if you're not following along, um, episode by episode. Um, in chapter four, we we start with this scene of of Bob Arctor at work. He's in his persona as Fred. So the way this usually works is because the police department's so corrupt and so leaky. The, the undercover police detectives can't let anyone else really know at work who they are. So they have to come to work in these scramble suits, which basically blur, the, blur out their identity, blur out their voice, so no one can really know who they are. They also will then talk to people also in scramble suits, so they can't know who they're talking to, and it, it keeps everything anonymous. So he is going to be informing not just on the people he lives with himself because no one in the police department really knows that he is Bob Arctor. Uh, and so it's, it's, there's a lot of fun that Dick has with this, this aspect of, of uh, his job. And we start to see it at work here as he goes to work and basically reports to this other guy in a scramble suit called Hank. So he, uh, Bob Arctor in the scramble suit is only known as Fred. And this other guy is known as, as Hank. And he just, uh, you know, is asked questions. Have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? I guess other leads from other detectives bring in stuff to him, and he doesn't really know much about them. It seems that Fred really only knows this small circle of friends that he's he's living with. And speaking of this, I'm playing with a little bit of a theory here that that let's just remove all the side elements and just look at the, what we see. What we see is a police department obsessed with one house, one gang of losers. Um, and maybe that's all there really is left of the war on drugs. Maybe it's not the drug wars lost. It's just been reduced to a handful of drug addicts, but the police are insisting on like their full resources to go to town, go on, go to town on them. And, you know, and that's, I mean, that's their paranoia. Their paranoia is that the is that this one little pocket of drug users is a threat to the entire culture of, of California. Um, so that's that could be one way of reading it. Now, there's a lot of evidence that there's other drug users and police are very active and it's a, it's a big problem. But just if you take this paranoia narrative to its extremes, perhaps it's, you know, maybe the paranoia is so deep in the police department that, that they're seeing drug users everywhere where there's really not that, that many. Or they're seeing a bigger problem than there really is. Um, which might be true of, of the real war on drugs, right? I'm, you know, there are issues with, with drug use in America, but uh, often the police are looking in the, the wrong place, it seems to me. Um, anyways, like, like street dealers rather than, you know, pharmaceutical corporations. Anyways, we're talking about Fred at work. And so he's just doing this debriefing with this, this guy, Hank, and it's, it's a fun conversation. You, we, we see a lot of evidence of, of Fred... Bob Arctor already sort of losing his, his mind and, and, and not really being clear on, on where he is. But the really funny parts here is when he's asked questions about himself and he has to, you know, kind of basically inform on himself. 
And Dick does write about the oddness of this this whole relationship. Uh, this is on page 57 of the vintage edition of the book. Quote, at first he had believed it to be the scramble suits that both of them wore. They could not be physically, they cannot physically sense each other. Later on, he conjectured that the suits made no actual difference. It was the situation himself. Hang, for professional reasons, purposely played down the usual warmth and usual arousal in all directions. No anger, no love, no strong emotion of any sort would help either of them. How could intense natural involvement be of any use when they were discussing crimes, serious crimes committed by persons close to Fred, and even as in the case of Luckman and Donna dear to him? He had to neutralize himself. They both did. Him more so than Hank. They became neutral. They spoke in a neutral fashion. They looked neutral. Gradually, it became easy to do without prearrangement. And then afterwards, all his feelings stepped back. Indignation at many of the events he had seen, even horror in retrospect. Shock. Great overpowering runs for which there had been no previews. With the audio always up loud inside his head. Um, that's, That's how he has to work. He has to work by removing himself from... A community that he's a part of. He, he's he is part of this drug culture for all intents and purposes. That's where he lives most of his life as an undercover detective. And these are his these are his friends. And and Donna, one of the dealers he's onto, is he wants to make a make a lover of his. So after these two foremost blurs uh, have their conversation, we trip to another scene, and this is back in Bob Arctor's house with his 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 roommates, and now it's Barris who's. You know, kind of a crap artist. He's he's got a little bit of the crap artist in him. Um, he's very interested in in kind of engineering and technical matters, and he seems to be well educated, but he's often wrong and confused about things. And we saw that where he tried to make cocaine or, or derive cocaine from a sunburn spray, and here he's trying to make a homemade silencer in this scene. So he thinks he has this technical know-how, but it seems to be almost delusion of his own by brought on maybe by his, his drug use. Uh, of course, we've always, we all meet people like this who, who have a, an overinflated sense of their own capacity and tend to talk in pompous ways to, to reinforce that, even though there's not much uh, matter behind it. But yeah, it's a funny scene where he's trying to make a silencer basically out of household appliances with, you know, like pillows and stuff and wrapping it to the gun. And it doesn't really work. We get a little bit of Bob Arctor's background in this scene, too. We we learned earlier in the novel, actually, that he had a couple kids and a wife before and he seemed to have lost it all. Took this job, you know, informing for the police. And we get the sense that he does feel some regret over what he's lost and the kind of life he's he's living now. Um, especially kind of the darkness and the bleakness of the world he's 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 inhabited since since the the breakup of his of his family quote but in a dark world where he now dwelt ugly things and surprising things and once in a long while a tiny wondrous thing spread spilled out of him constantly he could count on nothing like the deliberate evil damage to his altic cephalachromoscope around which he had built the pleasure part of his schedule a segment of the day in which he, they all relaxed and got mellow. For someone to damage that made no sense viewed rationally. End quote. Uh, now, this is a reference to something that happened to him earlier, whereas basically bears broke his cephalochronoscope, which is basically like his, like a TV, some kind of 3D TV or a VR device he wears uh, to, to relax. And there's a really, his, probably his most prized possession, but it's been broken. Uh, Barris has, has, has broken it, but Barris doesn't want to admit it. And there's some tension uh, between the characters over over that. And they're going to grow over time. Barris doesn't trust Bob Arctor. Bob Arctor uh, gets more and more hostility towards towards Barris for a variety of reasons. Um, 
but it, it's kind of sad here with this replacing of a family for these really modest commercial consumable pleasures like uh, whatever he's doing with the cephalochromoscope or whatever he gets out of his addiction to substance D. He also spends a lot of this chapter thinking about the, the decline of this character, Jerry, who we met really right away in the very first scene. This was the character who felt he's been infested with aphids and, and had this paranoia over this aphid infestation. And he's just a sign of where all of these characters are, are heading. He just got there first. right? All these characters are on this treadmill well not a treadmill that's the wrong one an escalator to to where wherever jerry is right burned out mentally ill broken um and and bob archer knows all these people are kind of on that on that on that path and something weird happens at the end of uh, at the end of this chapter bob archer's trying to sleep and basically he's woken up in the middle of the night by barris who confesses First, he asks like the hypothetical question about who destroyed his cephalochromoscope, and then he he comes out and admits that that he that he's the one who broke it. But he suggests that there's like a ulterior motive or a conspiracy besides the breaking of it. Now, this is how delusional Barris is in his his own version of his his paranoia, because his paranoia runs so deep that he does things, and he's even able to think of a conspiracy behind why he does things. Um, quote uh where is this this is the dialogue no no bear said rapidly looking distressed you are looking at the person who did it buggered your cephaloscope that was my complete unintended statement which i was not allowed to utter you did it mystified he stared at bears whose eyes were murky with a sort of dim triumph why i mean it's my theory that i did it bear said under post-hypnotic suggestion evidently with an amnesia block so i wouldn't remember he began to laugh later arctor said and snapped off his bedside lamp much later barris rose dithering hey but don't you see I, i've got the advanced specialized electronic technical skills and i have access to it i live here what i can't figure out though is my motive you did it because you're nuts arctor said maybe i was hired by secret forces barris muttered in perplexity but what would their motive be possibly to start suspicion and trouble amongst us to cause dissension to break out causing us to be pitted against one another all of us uncertain of who we could trust who is the enemy and the like and they've succeeded, Arctor said. Um, I, I'm convinced a lot of these conversations between these characters, especially like Barris or, or, or Freck and Luckman and, and Bob Arctor, are drawn from life. They're things that really uh, happen to, to Philip Dick, or he knows people who would talk this way or have these kinds of ideas. Um, but this chapter is, is a lot about Bob Arctor and his, his character and how his character got here, what his day's like, and the growing confusion and ambiguity in his life due to the fact that he's basically riding on himself and, and the gradual loss of his of his own identity, partially due to the lack of loss of his family, that whatever his the family that was once there grounded him in some reality, it seems. But that's gone, and now he's in this uh, other state where he even like, goes to these virtual realities, it seems, a cephalochronoscope to, to escape that. So there's another level of, of kind of fakeness to, to the world that, that he lives and it, it's quite a bleak bleak look at, at Bob Arctor's day-to-day existence so chapter 5 we're told that Bob Arctor has to basically get everyone out of the house for a period of time in order so the police can come in and put up surveillance equipment so that's the scanner in the title the, the scanner so the house is going to be under visual surveillance from, from that point on basically the police have decided to, to have Fred target this house and that means they're going to have to, you know, once everyone's out, they're going to bring in the surveillance equipment. So Bob Arctor 
has to get out. Now, the police don't know Bob Arctor is Bob Arctor, really. They they just know he's one of the people who, who live in the house. So they have to all get out of there. And while they're gone, they're going to put in this equipment. And it's out. And so it's basically a road trip that he concocts for his friends. Bob Arctor's internal monologues in these chapters are really great, and they really get to the heart of the matter, which is just this the violence of the drug trade, the violence of, of the war on drugs, the futility of it all, the kind of the tra- the day-to-day tragedy of, of the drug trade. You know, when I've been rereading this, I think so much about The Wire, which talks about these themes uh, in, in, you know, in, in similar ways, actually. And he thinks about a story, uh, quote, he recalled a case in which a heroin dealer had to, had to burn a chick. He'd planted two packs of heroin in the handle of her iron, then phoned in an anonymous tick, tip on her to we tip. Before the tip could be acted on, the chick found the heroin, but instead of flushing it, she sold it. The police came, found nothing, then made a voice print on the phone tip, and arrested the pusher for giving false information to the authorities. While out on bail, the pusher visited the chick late one night and beat her almost to death. When caught, he asked why he had put out one of her eyes and broken both her arms and several ribs. He explained that the chick had come across two packets of high-grade heroin belonging to him, sold them for a good profit, and not cut him in. Such Arctor reflected was the pusher mentality. Well, anyways, they're going out. I think the, the, the justification is to find a new cephalochromoscope. So they're going and asking around, and, and Bob knows some people you're going to ask. And he really, while he's doing this, he visits this girl he knows at Kimberly Hawkins who is, like all the other characters we meet in this novel, burned out on Substance D and other drugs. She has a boyfriend named Dan who's violent towards her, who slashes her tires and is always yelling. And there's these poor elderly neighbors who put up with this every day and, and just kind of accept it as, as part of their life. It's, it's a pretty bleak chapter. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another window into, into, into this drug culture and into the, the lives of these people who are who are dealing with addiction and, and, and a society that doesn't really need them, right? Even the police have to come and Bob Arctor has to, you know, basically give his account of what happened with this, this fight. Um, and this, the, the conclusion to this is so sad. He, you know, he hears her locking all the doors of, of her house and it's futile because it's this man, Dan, Dan Mancher is able to going to be able to get in anytime he wants Futile locks, he thought, futile everything. The investigating officer advised her to call if the suspect returns. How can she without going out of her apartment? And there, Dan Mancher will stab her like she did the tires. And remembering the complaint of the old folks downstairs, she'll probably first step on and then fall dead into dog shit. He felt like laughing hysterically at the old folks' priorities. Not only did a burned-out freak upstairs night after night beat up and threaten to kill and probably would soon kill a young girl addict turning tricks who no doubt had strep throat, if not much else besides. And in addition to that... Anyways, that's the that's the the poor fate of this uh, Kimberly Kimberly Hawkins. Now, on the way back, uh, as they start driving back, they their car almost they they almost die actually because like the brake and the reverse wheel I think get reversed, and they eventually stop and and pull off to the side and, and investigate the car. And this, of course, just exacerbates Barris's feelings of paranoia. Bob Arctor's feeling of displacement, you know, who did this? Why was, why was it done? You know, why was their car sabotaged? There must be some conspiracy behind it. There must be some reason, whether it's involving the police or some other enemies they might have. Um, Bears wants to try to fix it. Uh, Bob Arctor's looking at it. They're, they're taking substance D during this whole scene as well. 
several pills. I think it's, it said at one point. And then Bob Arctor starts to smell dog shit on the engine. And eventually gets paranoid and starts blaming bears of having poisoned him from the same substance D that they were all sharing from. And it's really not just another sign of just how deeply paranoid these characters are and how troubled their their life is together. Now, Bob Arctor basically thinks Barris has been doing this all. Um, quote, you goddamn Barris. I know you did it. You screwed over the cephaloscope and now the car. You fucking did it, you kinky freak mother bastard. His voice was hardly audible, but as he yelled out at Smiling Barris, the dreaded stench of dog shit grew. He gave up trying to speak and sat there at the useless wheel of his car trying not to throw up. Thank God Luckman came along, he thought, or I'd or it'd be over for me this day. I'd be fucking all over and the hands of this burned out freaking creep. Fucking creep. This mother living right in the same house with me. End quote. Now, I don't think it's ever really explained why the car was malfunctioned or if they just, conf- you know, it's possible they're all losing their mind on drugs that they just confused the brake and the acceleration and it's all in their head. Um, at least that's, that's highly suggested here, it seems to me. But um, in any case, it grow- there's growing conflict between these characters over over all this weirdness that that happens but again it could all be in these characters minds the the smelling of the of the dog shit the 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 male car malfunction the the vomiting as a result of of the substance do you thinking it's it was um drugged um but anyways the the, the heart of this chapter is this road trip they take on and uh, this this dramatic scene with the car, but I think the real moral heart of the chapter is, is another window into just how futile and tragic the day to day, the day to day tragedies of the drug trade as seen the the Kimberly Hawkins story. I think that's um, a passage, that's a section that needs to be uh, it's considered, and, and you know it's it's kind of a side story, and it doesn't really fit into the main plot of the novel. So it can be easy to skip by it and not think about it, but there's a lot of of pathos in that that passage and i think it's a rather important one in the overall theme that dick's the overall argument dick's trying to make in this novel so that's chapter five chapter six begins with uh, an item uh, kind of a, a, a narrator's commentary quote what an undercover nar- narcotics agent fears most is not that he'll be shot or beaten up but that he'll be slipped a great hit of some psychedelic that will roll an endless horror feature film in his head for the remainder of his life, or that he'll be shot up with a mech's hit, half heroin, half substance D, or both of the above, plus a poison such as strychnine, which will nearly kill him but not completely so that the above can occur. Lifelong addiction, lifelong horror film. He'll sink into a needle in a spoon existence or bounce off the walls in the psychiatric hospital, or worse of all, a federal clinic. End quote. Uh, this is just another window into the main theme of the novel, which is the, the inbred nature of, of the drug trade and the police. And in this case, we, we have the addition of the federal clinic. Right? And that's going to be, of course, an important part of it. We've already been introduced to the, the New Life Clinic, which is also feeding off the, the drug trade. Um, again, this is a major theme of, of The Wire, the TV series The Wire, where you're, you're lear- you learn that everything is in one way kind of feeding off the drug trade and whether it's the lawyers or or the, the politicians or the police departments or or various aspects of of you know the urban underclass they're they're all part of it it's all connected right 
So a repairman comes to fix the car, and it's basically shown nothing was wrong with the car, that the driver was just mixed up. Uh, they, he did charge $30 for, for this first time, though. So they get back to the house. Uh, Bob Arctor realizes, you know, figures that they've had enough time to install the, the scanners in the house. And another really weird thing happens to these characters where Barris basically admits that he's left the front door open. Uh, well, he first he had a trap laid out for someone who would try to rob them or or plant some evidence or something in the house. And he's therefore left, you know, like a camera that would roll if he opens the door. And but it's only facing like the front door. So the question is like, well, how do you know he'll go in the front door? And Bear said, well, I left the door open with a note saying, you know, please come in, you know. And it was like addressed to Donna. And this would encourage then the the guy who, you know, had some kind of motive for coming into his house. Barris is thinking that there's some kind of conspiracy against him. And in fact, there is, right? There is a police investigation on this house. So he's not wrong. But uh, his, and in his response, of course, the fact that he left the door open horrifies Arctor and Luckman, who think that's just going to open up the door to criminals or people who, who really will plant evidence. Now, this scene is followed by another item, which I found really fascinating. Um, another kind of side commentary by the narrator. Quote, one of the most effective forms of industrial military sabotage limits itself to damage that can never be thoroughly proven or even proven at all to be anything deliberate. It's like the invisible political movement. Perhaps it isn't there at all. If a bomb is wired to a car ignition, then obviously there's an enemy. If a public building or a police political headquarters is blown up, then there's a political enemy. But if an accident or a serious accident occurs, if equipment merely fails to function, if it appears faulty, especially in a slow fashion over a natural period of time, the numerous small failings and misfirings in the victim, whether a person or a party or a country, can never marshal itself to defend itself. And he, you know, he goes on like this for a couple pages. This is the description, essentially, of infrapolitics, which is I'm borrowing from a, a political scientist named uh named James Scott, and he's most famous for the moral economy of the peasant argument, but he also wrote this book, you know, a scene like a state, which is really great about the failure of state-centered kind of reform efforts. And then he wrote another great book more recently on, on anarchism and called like, uh, what is it, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is about Southeast Asia. It's great. But uh, one of his most, I guess, politically influential books is called like Weapons of the Week, I think it's called. And th this introduces the idea of infrapolitics, which is like the day-to-day -day resistance that people engage in. You know, not necessarily always sabotage, but it could be everything from cultural resistance, like stories about the master class that, that kind of humiliate them or make them, you know, look, uh, you know, look unfortunate in some way. It could be, like a good example of this would be slaves who, you know, of course, the racist rhetoric of, 19th century America was that black people were were lazy or, or stupid. And so many slaves took advantage of this by working very slow and lazily or, or you know, they weren't being paid, so we don't blame them. Or, or like breaking tools and things or, or asking instructions on how to get things done. Um, and that was, of course, added to, you know, the plantation songs and another kind of cultural resistance or, or, or the formation of the black church on plantations. That was part of infopolitics too, but it, it could be these day-to-day -day acts of resistance that individually don't matter maybe that much, but collectively matter a whole lot and, and form 
narratives of resistance and actually have big effects in the aggregate. That's James Scott's uh, theory. And I think it's proven by history in, in many different ways. And, and Dick here sort of gets to this point with this conversation about um, sabotage. Quote, a wad of gum inside a copy, Xerox copying machine in a government office can destroy an irreplaceable and vital document. Instead of copy coming out, an original is wiped out. Too much soap and toilet paper, as the yippies of the 60s knew, can screw up the entire sewage of an office building and force all its employees out for a week. Now back to the scene in the house as they're entering the house. They start arguing and bickering over Barris's weird scheme to to try to catch someone in the act of of doing something to, to them, and they come to the conclusion that now there's going to be drugs all over the house that have been planted, and they're going to have to sell the house, and they're going to have to sell quickly before the police come and bust them all. And it's it's really a preposterous scheme, you know, to to sell the house. They even talk about you know telling people that there's drugs in the house to try to get a better price for it or whatever it's 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 ridiculous what they're trying to they're, they're so far removed from reality the, these characters are becoming more and more so we saw that the, the earlier scenes with these guys but it gets worse and it, it's reinforced throughout the novel just how uh, the gap between reality and the, and the world they live in is is growing more and more um and while they're having this conversation uh Donna walks in and says, like, there was a door just a sign on the door said I could come in. So I came in and, uh, you know, it was actually her, her, her marijuana cigarette, which first made them so paranoid because when they saw the lit marijuana cigarette, they realized someone was in the house. And, and that's what leads them to to freak out. But it turns out it was Donna's marijuana cigarette. And she was she was coming in as invited by the note. And so it's a rather humorous conclusion to the to the breakdown they were all having. Now, the chapter ends with Arctur uh, really being quite aware of, of the changes that are happening to him through his prolonged use of, of, of drugs. Quote, we're all dreaming, Arctur said. If the last to know he's an addict is the addict, then maybe the last to know when a man means what he says is the man himself, he reflected. He wondered how much of the garbage that Donna had overheard he had seriously meant. He wondered how much of the insanity of the day, his insanity, had been real or just induced as a contact lunacy by the situation. Donna always was a pivot point in reality for him. And for her, this was the basic natural question he wished he could answer. End quote. So that's chapter six. Uh, these are really great chapters. I think they're all wonderful and, and they're endlessly readable. The prose is, is so well put together. Um, the descent of these characters into paranoia and, and delusion is so well documented here. And it's all done in the, in the, in the space of just a couple of days of, of story time. It's just uh, Fred's at work, losing his mind at work. He goes home, he's losing his mind at home there's really no clear division between work and home anymore because now these scanners are going to be into are in his house and they have been installed so in the next episode we're going to pick up with chapters seven eight nine where we'll actually see what these what these cameras do and and what impact that has on on how fred bob archer does his job um, now i realize these chapters are really rich and i don't want to just read the whole thing to you um so if you if there's any really important points from chapters four five and six of a scanner darkly that you think i should talk about or or things i just skipped over or skimmed over you know leave, leave those comments below and, and share it with others or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com i would love very much to hear from you so next episode will be chapters seven through nine and and we'll just see what what the how the scanner uh 
comes into the story and what impact it has on on Bob Archer's investigation into himself. So thanks as always for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. To feel these changes happening in me.